Okay. And at the risk of infuriating those critics who seek pleasure in taking me to task for my many personal academic preferences and piccadillos, I return once more to the subject of the cruiser Macarius and its commander, Leoton Semper. Those readers less well-versed in the details of the later events of the Gothic Sector War may wonder why I have involved myself to such an extent in the events surrounding one vessel, which was, to be sure, just one of hundreds such warships amongst Battlefleet Gothic, and its so far unknown captain. Uh, to those readers, I ask that they indulge me for a time yet, although the next action which I intend to examine is remarkable, in so far unmentioned and overlooked by previous chroniclers, in that it serves as prologue to the unimaginable events that were soon about to change the nature of the Gothic Sector War. Leoton Semper, serving in the front line of the conflict, could not be aware of the true meaning behind the mutiny and desertion of the crew of the scouting cruiser Bellerophon, or of the stolen prize they were taking with them over to the enemy. But others, serving in Battlefleet Command, could and perhaps should have seen the events surrounding the Bellerophon for what they truly were. The final piece of a puzzle trail that began some four years earlier, before the start of the Gothic Sector War proper, with the devastation of the Imperial outpost guarding the Ark's Gap in 139M41. Had this and other events been recognised for what they were, the despoiler's intentions and the reasons behind his incursion into the Gothic sector could have been divined earlier, saving the lives of untold billions of the Emperor's subjects and averting a terrible danger that still threatens the Imperium of Mankind to this very day. Scribe Amertius Rodrigo Conniger From Into the Jaws of Death, Into the Mouth of Hell Notable Actions of the Gothic Sector War, 143-149-M41 Part 2. Matters of Honour All over the ship, the clamour of combat was dying away. The sounds of gunshots and the clash of steel on steel were now being replaced by cheers and screams. Cheers as the victors hunted the last few enemy survivors through the labyrinth of the ship's decks, and passageways, screams as they found each of them in turn. Flag Lieutenant Pavar Miguel walked the length of the main chancel leading to the ship's arsenal, accepting the salutes of the weary but victorious fighters, and stopping to offer praise and words of comfort to the injured and dying. It was here that their enemies had made their final stand, barricading themselves inside the main arsenal hold, and attempting to detonate the munitions stored there, in a last desperate act of defiance. And it had been Miguel himself who had led the assault to clear out the last pocket of resistance and prevent the enemy destroying the entire ship. A new wave of cheering, louder than any of the others he could hear, rang out from along the broad passage. Miguel saw an excited scrum of his men running towards him. They were tossing something, ragged and bloody, up into the air, and catching it on the ends of their cutlasses and bayonets. Miguel watched as something smaller, but just as bloody was kicked along the deck towards him. It landed at his feet with a sick, wet sound. He looked down in curiosity. It was lumpen and misshapen, kicked to a bloody pulp by the heavy work boots of the gunnery crew gangs, and with one eye gone. But Miguel still recognised it as the head of ship's commissar Brandt. Sir, Miguel turned. Acting officer of the watch Kelto was standing to attention before him. Kelto was young and inexperienced for such a veteran position, but Miguel judged that the ambitious young officer had earned the post when he executed the previous holder of the rank during their initial violent takeover of the command deck. Kelto's uniform was torn and blood-stained from the fighting, but Miguel noticed with approval that this keen young blood had already ripped off the silver Imperium eagle crest and epaulets from his stained tunic. 
All decks report victory, sir, grinned the young officer. There'll still be a few stragglers hiding out in the remotest sections, or even in our own ranks, but we'll find them all soon enough. Abaddon be praised, Captain. The ship is ours. The clash of steel on steel rang through the metal cavern of the flight deck. The deck, the largest open space aboard the Macarius, would normally be full of noise and activity. The screams of revving engines, the shouts of officers barking out orders to sweating ground crew, the rumble of missile-laden loading bay elevators arriving from the arsenal section deep within the ship's hull, the chanting of choirs of tech priests as they blessed the rows of attack craft suspended in their launch cradles before the start of a combat mission. But today, all normal activity on the flight deck had been brought to a halt. High officers and ground crew mingled together around the space cleared amongst the deck's maintenance bays. Of the hundreds of crewmen crowded around or watching from the gantry walkways above, only the machine-like servitor drones had not paused from their pre-programmed duties to watch the spectacle now taking place in the centre of the deck. Lieutenant Hito Olante danced back out of reach of his opponent's blade, mindful of the patches of spilled fuel and lube fluid that covered the floor of the flight deck. Back home, in the towering cities of Necromunda, dueling had been elevated to almost an art form amongst the ruling clans of the Upper Hives, a worthy pastime for every ambitious young blade keen to prove himself in the harsh and unforgiving world of spire politics, where assassination and violent inter-clan rivalry were as much part of life as the suffocating layers of aristocratic ritual and etiquette. But in the Imperial Navy, things were different. Here, when one faced an opponent in close combat, it was not in the rarefied atmosphere of the dueling chamber, where well-executed moves and flourishes were greeted by a polite chorus of appreciative hisses from the assembled onlookers. In the Navy, close combat came as the result of vicious and bloodily fought boarding actions, hundreds of participants slaughtering each other within the close confines of a ship's passageways and holds, fighting with whatever weapon or heavy tool came to hand. Olante hefted the sabre in his hand, its blade cutting the air in a series of precisely practised parry moves, which caused his opponent to pull back from his intended counter-attack. Heavier than the Necromundan dueling foil he was used to, Elante's sabre was a concession to the different combat style demanded by the facts of space warfare. Handcrafted to his own specifications, it was a weapon fit for both a Necromundan aristocrat and an officer in his Divine Majesty's navy, and this was the first time that Elante had used it in combat. A weapon's first blooding was an important ritual for any warrior, and the fact that it was to be conducted here at the expense of the blood of a fellow officer rather than an enemy of the Emperor was not a problem that much trouble the young nobleman. I've trash, convict press gang father, sneered his opponent, prowling around the edge of the other side of the circle. Why don't you come over here within reach of my blade, and I'll give you a much-needed lesson in how a real fleet officer fights. Elante fainted forward, the expression of exaggerated anger on his face not matching the coolly calculated manner in which he made his attack. Spotting a pool of spilled lube fluid on the deck in front of him, he pretended to slip, stumbling awkwardly into the path of his opponent, who quickly took the bait, moving forward to finish the duel. Elante closed the trap, easily sidestepping his opponent's lunge, bringing his own blade up to bear, its point punching through the heavy material of his opponent's flight suit and through into his body. Elante slipped the blade with practised ease through the ribcage and into his opponent's heart. He stepped back, withdrawing the blade contemptuously and allowing his opponent's body to slump to the ground, its blood pooling out to mix with the other fluids staining the floor of the flight deck. Elante turned, raising his bloody sabre in salute to the stolid figure of Broughton Steyer, the ship's officer of the watch, acting here as the captain's representative, supervising the proper conduct of the duel. Steyer mutely nodded his assent, and Alante turned and walked away, followed by the young junior officer whom he had selected as his second. The only sound in the entire flight bay 
was that of the two officers' jackboot heels, echoing loudly on the metal decking, and Alante could feel the simmering resentment of the hundreds of crewmen around him as they stared silently at the retreating figure of the slayer of one of their own. Behind him, acting on a tech priest's gestured command, two servitors paced forward to remove the dead squadron commander's body. Their lobotomized machine minds, uncaring of the details of the human drama, that had just taken place. You disapprove of my duel with Squadron Commander Lucian, Captain. I disapprove of the loss of an able and experienced Starhawk Squadron Leader, Lieutenant. I expect the killing of the Emperor's loyal servants to be the task of our enemies, not my own second-in-command. Alante was standing to attention before the seated figure of his captain, Leoton Semper. It was dark in the captain's private quarters, but Alante's experienced hive-born eyes could pick out the details of the place. What he saw was a room decorated in a strict Spartan style, far less luxurious than Alante's own quarters. Even the bed was little more than a simple pallet of the kind given to the lowliest scholar Progenium cadet. Tellingly, there were none of the small but important details to suggest that the captain enjoyed any female company in his quarters. No ornamentation or frivolous pieces of decor. Nothing to relieve the starkness of grey bulkhead walls and bare metal decking. It was permitted for officers of Battlefleet Gothic to keep concubines aboard ship. Indeed, it was rumoured that Lord Admiral Ravensburg kept a harem of fifty or more in their staterooms aboard the fleet flagship, Divine Right. Alante himself had kept a particularly energetic example of fiery Stranovar womanhood with him in his quarters, until tiring of her recently and deliberately losing her in a game of dice with one of Remus Nida's junior ordnance officers. Alante couldn't imagine Semper allowing himself to be distracted by base pleasures, and the look of Semper's private quarters only confirmed the flag lieutenant's opinion of his commanding officer. A career officer, he lives and breathes only for the Imperial Navy, Alante thought. Every minute wasted relaxing in his quarters is a minute not spent overseeing the running of his ship. Ulanti's gaze fell on the large and ornate desk before him, the only object of any real notes in the entire room. Its surface cluttered with star maps and report files. Ulanti recognised the captain's characteristic high gothic scribbled handwriting. With an effort, he looked away from the pile of sealed hollow-script scrolls marked with the sigil, indicating they were for the captain's eyes only until he noticed an object very much out of place amongst all the other detritus of the captain's burden of leadership. It was a skull, larger than any human's, its heavy jutting jawbone crowned with two savage-looking upturned tusks. The eye sockets were small, sunk deep beneath the thick bony plate of the sloping forehead, and Alante saw that the top of the skull's inches-thick dome had been smashed open long ago, by what must have been a blow of some considerable force. Semper followed his second-in-command's gaze, reaching out to touch the grisly object with what seemed to Alante a certain amount of fond regard. A souvenir of the first boarding action I ever led, he said by way of explanation, picking up the skull and weighing it in his hands. A disabled orc raider, a part of a pack operating out of the fringes of the Cyclops cluster. I was terrified, but more afraid of failing in my duty than in dying gloriously in battle. At the height of the battle, I found myself face to face with this brute, one of the creature's leader breeds. He gave me this. With his other hand, Semper touched the long, jagged scar that cut down one side of his gaunt face and smiled grimly to himself. As you can see, I gave him something even more memorable in return. We took the ship and I was awarded my first combat honours. It was only the medallion crimson, but to me then it felt as if I had won the obscurus honorifica itself. Semper laid down the trophy and looked sharply at his second-in-command. You see, Mr. Alante, I do still remember something of what it is to be an ambitious and hot-blooded young officer. But understand this. While this sector is still at war, there will be no more death duels amongst my officers. Both the Emperor and I 
would prefer if you killed the enemy instead of each other. I was defending my honour as an officer in His Divine Majesty's Navy, Ulante answered stiffly. As second-in-command of this vessel, my authority is derived directly from your own, Captain. If any member of the crew does not respect that authority, then they are challenging not only my position, but yours also. I did what I had to, in accordance with Lord Admiral Ravensburg's own edicts on duelling to defend my honour and maintain respect for this vessel's chain of command. Semper sat back in his chair, uh, pausing before answering the flag lieutenant. Like Alante, the commander of Battlefleet Gothic was a high-born aristocrat. But while Lord Admiral Ravensburg came from the finest blue-blood stock of Cipramundi's naval cadre elite, Alante came from one of the noble clans of one of the most notorious hive worlds in the Imperium. According to the ancient and hide-bound traditions of the Imperial Navy, all hive worlders were scum, trash, a source of mass conscript labour, suitable only for use as Imperial Guard cannon fodder, or to fill the most lowly and menial positions amongst the vast expendable scrum of press-ganged ratings and indentured workers that made up the bulk of any Navy vessel's crew. Officers originating from any of the hundreds of hive worlds within the Imperium were rare within the ranks of Battlefleet Gothic, and almost unheard of at anything approaching the senior rank now held by Haito Alante. His second-in-command's battle was not with his individual brother officers, Sempernu, but with the millennia-old traditions and prejudices of the Imperial Navy itself. Semper leaned forward to regard his second-in-command, deliberately hardening his voice as he spoke. I do not know how things are done on Necromunda, but here, in Segmentum Obscurus, here in the ranks of Battlefleet Gothic, respect for one's brother officers is something to be earned, not won as a dueling arena blood prize. It is earned by loyalty, loyalty to the Imperium, to the fleet, and to one's own comrades. It is earned in action against the enemies of the Emperor. It is earned by leadership and sacrifice, by the often hard decisions we must make in the course of our duty to the Imperium of Mankind. Ravensburg's edicts be damned. He may be Lord Admiral of Battlefleet Gothic, but I am captain of this ship, and I say there will be no more jewels fought aboard the Macarius. I have consulted with Commissar Kyogen on this matter, and he concurs with my judgment. Brawling and fighting are punishable offences amongst the lower ranks, and now so shall it be amongst the officers too, no matter what form it may take. Semper leaned back again, seeing something cold and hard come into his flag lieutenant's eyes. I've insulted him, Semper realised. On his world, any comparison between the conduct of a noble and that of the teeming billions living below him in the hive must be an insult of the gravest sort. Well, so be it. I've read him the page from the Book of Judgment, so maybe now I should offer him something from the litanies of contrition and compassion. If it is blood and glory you seek, Lieutenant, if it is a chance to prove yourself to your brother officers, then it is fortunate indeed that you are standing before me now. A short time before I sent for you, Chief Astropath Rapavna arrived bearing an urgent Astropath-sent message from Battlefleet Command at Port Moore. The message was sent for my ears only, but I would like you to hear it too. Adeptus Repavne. Semper suppressed a smile as Lante visibly stiffened with shock at the sound of soft footsteps behind him, and the green-cloaked figure of the astropath shuffled forward out of the darkness behind him. Lante had not known that the astropath had been in the room with them all along, Semper realised. Technically, it might be thought of as poor protocol to have another present at what had essentially been a private reprimand of a senior officer, but Semper did not consider that such niceties applied in the case of Adeptus Repavna. Astropaths were a vital part of the Imperium, found by the side of every fleet commander, every space marine chapter master, every planetary overlord. They stood in the shadows at gatherings of the mighty council of the High Lords of Terror, waiting silently as their masters debated on issues which would affect the fates of untold billions. There were few secrets in the Imperium that had not first passed through the mind of an astropath. Semper judged that the dressing down of one impetuous young flag officer 
would be of little interest to one of these essentially silent keepers of the Imperium's deepest secrets. The astropath took his place before the captain's desk, nodding briefly in acknowledgement of Alante. The lieutenant shifted slightly, clearly uncomfortable to be in such close proximity to the Psyker. The very existence of the Imperium depended on Psykers such as astropaths and the mutant navigators. But on a million inhabited worlds within its far-spread borders, the citizens of the Imperium were taught from birth to hate and fear the mutant and the Psyker. The higher one rose in Imperial service, Semper noted, the more one was forced to consort with the likes of astropaths and other such officially sanctioned abominations. Repavna's already mask-like features settled into a fixed waxen image as he entered a trance state, his enhanced mental senses reaching down into his subconscious to find the psychically transmitted message hidden there. The dark skin of his face was covered in an intricate webwork of tattoos, psychic wards favoured by many of his kind to protect themselves from warp demons. His eyes were sewn shut, his sight long ago destroyed as a side effect of the agonising ritual of soul-binding with the Emperor, but two painted eyes were tattooed onto his closed eyelids, these false eyes staring blindly ahead as the astropath opened his mouth and delivered the message. The voice which emerged was not solely Repavna's, and in its eerie whispering tone Semper knew he could also hear not only the voice of the other astropaths in the chain that had psychically relayed the message from Portmore to the Macarius, but also the distant echo of the voice of the senior command officer who had originally given the message to the very first astropath in the chain. Imperial Standard 0274143M41 Ship of the Line, Bellerophon A dauntless class light cruiser Assigned Battle Group Volaris Bian Moore Subsector has attacked and destroyed Adeptus Mechanicus way station Oraka system. Assumed Bellerophon crew forsaken the Emperor's light and gone over to the side of the enemy. Believed important technical information stolen from Oraka way station. His Divine Majesty's ship Lord Solar Macarius to intercept and destroy Bellerophon. Mission priority highest Ave Imperator. Repavna paused a look of slight confusion on his face. Then his features shifted subtly again as he came out of the fugue state, before he bowed to Semper and glided away from the two officers. Semper glanced at Ulante, the two of them sharing the same look of sharp anticipation. The Macarius had been assigned to escort duty on the Beanmore run for the last few months since the onset of the Gothic Sector War. It was a vital task, they knew, keeping the supply routes open to the front-line systems and protecting the desperately needed convoys from the pirate raiders of the Wolf Pack fleets. But both officers yearned for the chance to engage directly with their main enemy. It would seem that our victory over the contagion has not been forgotten after all, said Semper, unrolling a large chart across the expanse of his desk. We have finally been given a mission worthy of our devotion to the Emperor. The recovery of the stolen technical data is a vital task, certainly, but to allow a mutinied crew to escape unpunished or one of his divine majesty's ships to join the ranks of the enemy would be to bring dishonour on the entire battle fleet. Make no mistake about it. The successful completion of this mission is a matter of honour for all of Battlefleet Gothic. Of course, he added, indicating the spread-out star chart, to bring vengeance to the enemies of the Emperor... We must first find them. Your opinion, Mr. Olante. The captain indicated the map, and Olante leaned forward, inspecting the complex network of star system positions, interlinking warp passages, tide patterns, and time dilation estimate equations that made up any normal Imperium star chart. The ability to read such charts to absorb and understand the multi-layered levels of information contained within them was just one of the many skills required of a senior officer in his Divine Majesty's Imperial Navy. Alante ran his fingers across the surface of the chart, tracing out the Bellerophon's most likeliest course heading. They're probably without any navigator capability, he suggested, looking up to see Semper nodding in agreement. The Navis Nobilite was one of the oldest and most crucial cornerstones of the Imperium, and a ship's navigator traditionally chose death 
rather than giving himself up to the Emperor's enemies. That means they can only make short blind warp jumps at no more than a few light years at a time, continued Alante, one finger marking out a cluster of star systems in the upper corner of the chart. Their last reported position was in the Eureka system, but the nearest enemy-occupied territory is here in the Killian Atoll group. That's where they're probably making for. But to get there, they have to make six or seven separate warp jumps, avoiding Imperium-controlled systems and standard fleet patrol routes on the way. Melante looked up at his captain, who silently nodded for him to continue. And given our current position and the renegade's most likely course towards the enemy lines, I believe we will still be able to intercept them. Melante's finger moved across the rough surface of the chart. The finest and oldest star chart parchments were supposed to be made from human skin, but this felt like some lesser substitute. Animal hide, perhaps. Here. His finger stabbed down on a remote single star, well off the normal warp travel routes. The accompanying chart icons identified it as a dying red dwarf star, orbited by four barren and uninhabited planetoids. Delphi. We can intercept them in the Delphi system. Semper leaned back in his chair, smiling. I concur, and so did Navigator Cassander when I consulted him earlier. To your station, Mr. Olante. We make the ascent into the Immaterium in forty minutes. Half speed, Mr. Kelter. Keep our power emissions down and maintain full outward surveyor scanning, Pava Miguel ordered. The Bellerophon was moving forward cautiously into the star system, its long-range surveyors probing for the tell-tale energy signatures of any of the ships in the area. Delphi was a barren wilderness system, just one of hundreds of such groups within the vast area of space encompassed within the Gothic Scepter, but the new captain of the Bellerophon was not in the habit of taking unnecessary risks. Those few short but intensely bloody hours of mutiny which had swept through the ship had taken long and careful planning by him and a small circle of other like-minded officers aboard the Bellerophon. The Imperium was losing the Gothic Sector War, Miguel had realised, and it had been surprisingly easy to find other young officers who had come to the same conclusion, and who were equally frustrated with the stultified thinking and hidebound traditions of the Imperial Navy. Anyone with true insight could see that the power of War Master Abaddon and his followers was in the ascendancy. The living corpse imprisoned on the Golden Throne would be powerless to stop the forces now sweeping out of the Eye of Terror. First the Gothic Sector, soon the whole rotting body politic of the Imperium itself, Miguel thought with a smile. And the Imperium's new masters would remember and reward those who had been first to realise in which direction the tides of fate were moving throughout the galaxy. Miguel remembered his own moment of such realisation, recalling the dank stench of the Bellerophon's ship's brig and the whispering voice of the captured enemy prisoner who, out of what had seemed a feeling of morbid curiosity, Miguel had gone down to the brig to interrogate. He had made a point of personally executing the prisoner afterwards, mostly to allay the suspicion of the ever-watchful Commissar Brandt. Uh, but by then the seeds of the insurrection had already been planted in the ambitious young flag lieutenant's mind. The prisoner, one of the sorcerer navigators of Abaddon's fleet, had cunningly seen the doubts already there, and had revealed to him something of the ways and secret recognition signs used amongst the covert groups of followers of the powers of the warp, and it was on a regular stopover on an Imperium mining world that Miguel had first made contact with a coven of chaos worshippers. Again, Miguel smiled to himself, remembering how shockingly easy it had been to find the servants of the ruinous powers, and wondering what Lord Admiral Ravensburg would say if he knew just how many chaos covens flourished on every inhabited world in the Gothic sector, and even in the furthest reaches of the holds and crew decks of many Imperial Navy vessels. After that, Miguel and his fellow conspirators had set about secretly encouraging and nurturing discontent amongst the crew. Not a difficult feat to achieve, considering master of the Bellerophon, Captain Agen Bloof's harsh and zealous attitude to all matters relating to discipline aboard his vessel. Miguel had bided his time, waiting for word from his newfound masters within the Eye of Terror. 
At last, it had arrived, telling him what they required him to do before he would be welcomed into the ranks of the Reaver fleets of War Master Abaddon. Miguel settled back into his captain's chair, his hand touching the control lectern in front of him, and the patina of dried blood belonging to the chair's former occupant, presumably, which still stained the rune icons there. That old fool Bloth had still been alive when Miguel handed him over to the crew, and Miguel idly wondered if they had been able to make good on their promise to keep their former commanding officer alive but begging for death for days to come. Miguel ran his hand across the pattern of glowing rune icons, thinking of the stolen tech priest secrets now safely stored within the memory banks of the ship's logic engines. He had done as his masters had bidden, and when the Bellerophon reached the safety of chaos-controlled space, he would present the information in person to War Master Abaddon. Of course, the majority of his crew knew nothing of the true nature of their new allies, but Miguel cared little about their fate. After... Rearwood surveyors detecting an unknown vessel approaching on an interceptor course, distance 840,000 kilometres. The blank, emotionless voice of the servitor drone rang out in the quiet of the undermanned command deck, instantly snapping the Bellerophon's new captain out of his reverie. Officer of the watch, confirm and identify, barked Miguel, not trusting the word of one of the machine men slaves. Lieutenant Kelto bent over the lectern screen in front of him, the light from the rows of rune signs scrolling across the screen, casting a sickly glow over his nervous young features. Energy output shows it's a capital ship. It's jamming its own vessel recognition codes. But from the reactor signature, I'd say it's an imperial ship, almost certainly cruiser level or better. Despite the obvious danger, Miguel allowed himself to relax somewhat. As a light scouting cruiser, the Bellerophon would be heavily outgunned by any of the standard Imperial cruiser types, but even with the internal damage and heavy crew casualties caused during the mutiny, Miguel was confident that his faster and more manoeuvrable vessel could still outrun its larger, lumbering cousin. In fact, the only way that the other Imperial ship could successfully cut off their escape would be if... Change in the enemy vessel's energy signature, Kelto said, panic clear in his voice. Multiple smaller energy signatures breaking away from it. It's an attack craft carrier. It's sending bomber squadrons after us. Squadron Commander Milos Kaperian surveyed the instrumentation panel in front of him, intoning a silent prayer of thanks as the status runes representing each of the ten Starhawk bombers under his command glowed a healthy green. Glancing out of the cockpit window, he could see his wingman taking up position to his port and starboard, each of them tens of kilometres distant, but with the bright flares of their multiple mass-reactive engines starkly marking their position against the blackness of space. To his rear... The seven other Starhawks of his squadron would also be manoeuvring into attack formation, he knew, and somewhere beyond them the Starhawks of Firedrake, Harbinger and Mantis squadrons would be doing the same, joining up with his own squadron and forming up one large attack wing as they closed the distance on their target. Forty Starhawks. Ave Imperator, he thought to himself, as he keyed open a comlink channel. Let the enemies of the Emperor beware. Nemesis 1 to Macarius. All systems are green. Distance to target, 200,000 kilometres and closing. Understood, Nemesis, came back the reply. Caparium recognising the craggy-toned voice of Remus Nider, the Macarius's formidable master of ordnance. Macarius bids you good hunting. Taking his accustomed place in the central nave of the command deck, Leoton Semper watched with his usual hawk-like intensity as the pattern of glowing icon markers on the main scanner screen displayed the Starhawk attack wave's progress towards their target. Squadrons within attack range of target, reported Remus Nider, his ordnance control area of the bridge now buzzing with activity as teams of junior officers and grey-cloaked tech priests monitored the streams of data being fed back from the Starhawks. They're reporting incoming defensive fire from the target. Semper looked over to where his flag lieutenant stood. Mr. Alante, 
The Necromundan activated a rune on his lectern console, glancing over the information now displayed there. They may be firing at us, sir, but they've not as yet hit anything. We're His Divine Majesty's Imperial Navy, not the ground-pounder rabble of the Imperial Guard, and we don't panic at the first sign of danger. Recommend that attack wave proceeds on to close strike distance from target, and deploys missiles from there for optimum effect. Semper nodded in agreement at its flag lieutenant's forthright response, and gestured to the waiting Master of Ordnance. Signal all squadrons to proceed as ordered. Mr. Olante will give the launch order at his discretion. Van Dyer's teeth, Milus Caparian cursed, triggering his starboard thrusters and jinking the 200-ton attack bomber out of the path of a kilometre-wide explosive starburst which filled the view out of the cockpit's main viewing port. All around the lead Starhawk, the hard vacuum of space was filled with similar explosions and energy bursts. At this range, still almost 1,000 kilometres away from the target, a direct hit was almost impossible but each energy blast emitted a burst of widespread and high-intensity radiation, lethal to both the bomber's crew and control systems, while each exploding anti-ordnance missile warhead or mass-reactive shell threw out a hail of shrapnel that would cover a volume of space tens of kilometres across. Caparian activated one of the runes on his comlink console, sending out an automated status request to the rest of his squadron. Elsewhere, he knew, the other squadron commanders in the attack wave would be doing likewise. The cockpit's open-channel comlink squawked into life as the responses came flooding back. Nemesis free to Nemesis leader. Surveyor systems taken offline by that last radiation burst. Missile targeting systems all gone. Tech priest Eliphis is attempting to effect repairs now. Nemesis 5 reporting. Heavy energy bleed from our power plant. Shrapnel hit. Must have severed a feed line somewhere. Unable to effect repair. We'll make it to the target, Nemesis 1. But it'll be a slow and scary ride back to the Macarius. Nemesis 9. Heavy damage. Starboard engine gone. Reserve air supply. 30% casualties. Luck. Nemesis 1. Caparian stabbed a rune on his console, switching comlink channels. Nemesis leader to Macarius. He snarled, unable to keep the anger out of his voice. I'm losing bombers here. Request permission to launch missiles. Macarius to Nemesis came back, the irritatingly calm voice reply. Proceed to target. Launch order will be given as and when the Macarius deems necessary. Caparian shared a look with his co-pilot, both men recognising the voice on the comlink. It's Alante, nodded his co-pilot, Madik Tor, a stolid and dependable veteran with more than 60 combat missions to his credit. That hive trash killed Lucian, and now it seems he's determined to wipe out the rest of us as well. Both men grimly turned their attention to the task before them, trying to second-guess the gunners aboard the Bellerophon as they piloted the powerful gull-winged deep space bomber through the crop of starburst explosions that blossomed in the void between them and their target. 800 kilometres, a flare of blinding energy off their port wing. Caberian checked his console readout, seeing the icon representing Nemesis 2 stutter and fade out. 700 kilometres, a piercing shriek rang out over the open comm channel, a terrified and nameless voice gibbering out a hurried prayer, commending his soul to the Emperor before being finally cut off in a scream of static, followed by the telling static hiss of dead air. 600 kilometres. Caparian's craft was rocked by the concussive blast of an explosion somewhere off its starboard wing. He fought to bring the bomber under control, his mind only barely registering the flashing red icons lighting up all over his instrumentation panels and the ugly klaxon alarm sounding over the craft's internal comnet. Oh, breach, warned the eerily calm voice of tech priest Shinyin Ko sounding barely more human than the four onboard servitor drones under his control. Recommend you switch to flight suit emergency oxygen supplies until breach has been sealed. 500 kilometres. In space combat terms, this was considered near suicidal, a point-blank range. 
down in the nose cone section housing the navigator and bombardier, the whine of the payloads locked on targeting systems rose to an insistent scream, audible over the bomber's comnet. Macarius to attack wing, you are granted permission to launch missiles. Thirty-five remaining Starhawks launched half their full payload at once from a distance of just over 480 kilometres. Three of them suffered missile launch failure due to damage sustained in flight, one of them transforming into a cloud of vaporised gas when its activated missiles detonated while still fixed in their wing mounts. The guns aboard the Bellerophon suddenly fell silent. The ship's surveyor systems requiring a scanning field free of the radioactive static of explosions and energy bursts as the information they gathered was fed back to the ship's logic engines. All over the ship, non-vital technical systems slowed to a crawl or temporarily blacked out entirely, while the logic engines devoted the greater part of their processing capacity to calculating speeds, trajectories and interception points as the oncoming wave of missiles rushed towards their target at a speed of tens of kilometres a second. As the energy levels fluctuated all through the ship, the crew could only cower in the semi-darkness and pray to whatever powers they now followed, as they blindly consigned their fate to ancient and barely understood technology from an era millennia before their own birth. With the missile cluster now only a hundred kilometres and scant seconds away, the Bellerophon activated its final anti-ordnance defences, the logic engines feeding targeting coordinates and firing solutions through to those last-ditch automated defences. A gridwork of multi-laser turrets, autocannon batteries, plasma throwers and flechette launchers studied the outer hull of the Bellerophon and these activated now, throwing out a short-lived but concentrated curtain of firepower between the vessel and the missile wave. Each Starhawk had launched half its full payload of ten plasma warhead missiles apiece. Of these, over 30%, even at such close range, malfunctioned or failed to acquire their target. Another 20% would be destroyed by the Bellerophon's anti-ordnance systems. Of the 160 launched in the bomber wave, less than 80 would reach their target. And only a fraction of these would penetrate the ancient vessel's metres-thick armoured hull and do any damage that really mattered. It would still be more than enough to achieve the desired effect. Starhawk attack wing reports target well struck, announced Master of Ordnance Nida, with more than a hint of pride in his voice. Surveyor scans confirm this. The enemy's reactor output is fluctuating wildly and its void shield power levels are as naught. Target is crippled and drifting powerless in space. Starhawk wing requests permission to make a return sweep and expend all the remaining payload. Nida looked expectantly at his captain. By long-standing fleet tradition, the honour of the final kill should go to his Starhawk crews, but such a decision was the captain's privilege alone. It would not be unusual for a captain to choose to finish off a crippled enemy ship with torpedoes or massed weapons fire from the ship's main batteries, a diplomatic decision which would allow a navy vessel's bitterly competitive flight and gunnery crews to share equal honours in the victory. If neither was at all taken aback by what his captain said next, it never showed on the veteran officer's impassive face. Mr. Olante, you have tactical command in this engagement. What is your decision? If Hito Olante was at all surprised by his captain's choice, he showed no sign of it in his immediate and unhesitant response. Signal Starhawk squadrons to return to the Macarius, Captain. At present, Battlefleet Gothic is still seriously under strength, and the loss of one ship... To the side of the enemy hardly helps the matter, but why compound the damage when instead we can do something to redress the balance in our favour again? Explain yourself, Mr. Olante, Semper barked. What exactly are you suggesting? Olante looked up at his captain, a distinct gleam of excitement evident in his eyes. A boarding assault, Captain, which I volunteer to personally lead in the first assault wave. We board the Bellerophon. Reclaim it for the service of the Emperor and retrieve the stolen technical information. Board in action! Look lively, you scum! Find yourselves weapons and form up in a boarding parties! Bull-necked petty officers stormed up the narrow aisles of the crew decks, savagely kicking or clubbing anyone not moving fast enough for their liking. 
Maxim Barossa roused himself from his meagre pallet, scratching at the fresh bite marks from the parasites that infested his bedding, and spat out a well-aimed stream of brown-stained mixture of saliva and tudgy juice that narrowly missed the polished boots of his latest nemesis, Petty Officer Dobrazin. On your feet, Barossa! Dobrazin grinned down at him. Time to do your duty for the Emperor and put that magical invulnerability of yours to the test. Maxim sat up, force of habit causing him to rub at the scars on his wrists. It had been months since his status as the sole survivor of a direct hit that had wiped out the 200 other convict slave ratings and the gun bay where he had been assigned had turned him into almost a talismanic good-luck figure amongst his fellow crewmen. But Maxim swore he could still feel those metal cuffs cutting into his flesh. He spat again, clearing the vile aftertaste of the intoxicating taji root juice out of his mouth. Let those prayer-babbling idiots think what they want, Maxim decided. He knew that the only luck that counted for anything was the kind you made yourself. He stood up, reaching under his pallet to bring out his own good-luck talisman, a metre and a half of solid metal engineer's wrench. Petty officers and crew bosses were issuing weapons, axes, gaffs, cutlasses, to everyone assigned to the boarding assault. But for his own personal reasons, Maxim preferred to use this. He smiled to himself as he took hold of the heavy tool, remembering the satisfying crunch of bone as it stove in the skull of the last man who had underestimated Maxim Barossa. The first rule of space combat is to always know the exact position of the enemy. But Pava Miguel didn't have to check any of the surveyor screens around him to check whereabouts the Macarius was in relation to his own stricken vessel. Looking out of the command deck viewing port, he could see the shape of the Imperial cruiser, Vast and imposing at such close range, blotting out the star field as it slid into position portside of the crippled Belepharon. The batteries on that flank of the Belepharon were gone, obliterated by the hail of missiles that had punctured the warship's armoured skin, but Miguel could see the Macarius's own gun batteries trained on his ship, just as he could see the tiered openings of the attack carrier's launch bays, ready to unleash another wave of bombers at their helpless target. Miguel knew that the Macarius could destroy the Bellerophon at will, but he also knew that by moving in this close, the captain of the Macarius had already signalled his real intent. They're launching a boarding assault, Kelto said, his voice ragged with panic and fear. We don't stand a chance. We should signal our surrender now. The punishment for mutiny is death. I know, but with the rate of casualties the fleet is suffering, Ravensburg can't afford to throw away an entire crew. Perhaps we could... Ah! Miguel reholstered his last pistol and stepped contemptuously over the body of his former officer of the watch. With so many other corpses littering the decks of the Bellerophon, one more shouldn't make any difference. He drew his sabre and strode towards the doors of the command deck, signalling for the other remaining officers to join him. He didn't have to turn round to look at the viewing bay to know about the swarm of shuttles and assault boats now exiting the Macarius as they swiftly bridged the void between the two ships. Soon they would be attaching themselves to the outer hull of the Bellerophon, breaching airlocks and entry ports and unleashing their battle-hardened occupants into the interior of the ship. Miguel knew that his short-lived command of the Bellerophon was over. He had gambled and he had lost everything. Now... All he had left was his honour. For the second time within a few scant days, the decks and sections of the Bellerophon rang with the sounds of combat as its crew battled with the boarding parties from the Macarius for control of the stricken ship. Hito Alante sidestepped the chainsword blade which buzzed through the air in front of him. A dangerous weapon, he knew, but a clumsy one as well with many of those who wielded it depending too much on the weapon's fearsome destructive capabilities rather than their own fighting prowess. Volante knocked the blade aside on its return swing with a casual flick of his weapon and then thrust the point of his sabre into his opponent's throat. The enemy 
Some kind of ship's engineer, judging by the armoured suit he wore, collapsed to the ground, gurgling. Volante moved swiftly on, grinding one booted heel into the face of his still twitching opponent for good measure. In front of him, he saw another wave of the Bellerethon's defenders charging down the corridor towards him. He drew his las pistol, ascending volley after volley of searing laser fire into their packed ranks, only stopping when the weapon's power pack critically overheated, scorching the flesh of his hand. Alante threw the pistol away with a curse, taking up his sabre again and urging forward the remains of his boarding party, who filled the corridor behind him. A stray shotgun blast took off the head of the man next to him, adding another corpse to the carpet of bodies that lined the passageway. A hand scrabbled at his legs from down amongst this litter of dead and wounded, and Alante stabbed his sabre down in a short killing thrust, not even glancing down to check whether his victim had been from the crew of the Macarius or the Bellerephon. Blood flowed down the young officer's face from a head wound he didn't remember receiving, and the creeping numbness in his hand told him that the burn wounds there would require treatment after the battle. Alante had heard of the tactics perfected by the warriors of the Adeptus Astartes for such boarding actions. Small, well-trained squads of space marines penetrating deep into the interior of the enemy craft via teleport assault or manned boarding torpedoes and waging a rigorously coordinated battle plan with each squad seizing control of a specific vital part of the ship. This was nothing like that. This was simple brute slaughter, a bloody scrum in which the only victors would be the side which succeeded in putting all of the enemy to the sword. There were other senior command officers from the Macarius aboard the Bellerephon. Melanti knew that Commissar Kyogen had taken command of the second assault wave from the Macarius, but he had no idea where they were or how they were faring in their own separate battles. The blast doors at the end of the corridor rumbled open disgorging another wave of the Bellerephon's crew. Defenders and boarding party attackers met in a savage clash of arms. Elante rushed forward, catching a glimpse of a familiar crimson braiding on a uniform worn by the figure at the head of the enemy counterattack. It was the uniform of a flag lieutenant, identical to Elante's own, and so far it was the most senior rank Elante had seen amongst the defending crew. Elante lashed out with his sabre, with a newfound vigour, cutting a path through the press of bodies towards his enemy counterpart from the Bellerephon. Maxim Barossa spat into his opponent's face, the rebel screaming as the stinging taji juice came into contact with his eyes. He followed up with a brutal headbutt, breaking the bones of the rebel's face. The crewman reeled back, giving the Stranovar underhiver space in which to use his wrench. One blow and the rebel's head opened up in a red gush. Macarius! To me! Macarius crew! Maxim looked round to see Petty Officer Dobrazin struggling against a trio of attackers. Maxim didn't hesitate, shoulder charging into the back of the nearest one and smashing him against a thick iron bulkhead. He stumbled, his feet becoming entangled amongst the limbs of the downed man, and he was a split second late in blocking the attack from the next enemy in line. He hissed in pain as the rebel's sword blade sliced into the muscles of his upper arm, retaliating with a short punch into the rebel crewman's neck. The man staggered back, trying vainly to staunch the blood fountaining from the hole that Maxim had opened up in his jugular with a narrow-bladed stiletto secreted in his fist. The third rebel came at him with a hooked boarding gaff. Maxim took it off him with dismissive ease, snapped the man's arm, and gave him his weapon back by carving it through his stomach. Maxim bent over the prone form of Dobrazin, checking him for signs of life and finding a weak pulse. Good, he thought, hoisting up the petty officer and carrying him towards the nearest knot of Macarius crewmen. Help me, he yelled at the top of his voice. Help petty officer Dobrazin! Hans reached out to take the weight of the injured petty officer, in the confusion, Maxim deftly withdrew the stiletto blade from between Dobrazin's ribs and slipped away before anyone noticed that the injured man was already dead. Looking down, he noticed that Dobrazin's dark blue rank sash had come away in his hand. Distractedly, he tied it around his arm wound as a makeshift field dressing, then headed back into the thick of battle. Faint, block, cut, 
Paris Riposte. His opponent's fencing style had elements to it that were dangerously unfamiliar to Miguel, but in its basics it differed little from the thousands of other styles of swordsmanship as practised on countless violent warrior culture worlds throughout the Imperium. He and his opposite number from the Macarius were well matched. The enemy flag lieutenant was probably the better swordsman, Miguel realised, but he still had an advantage over the Imperial officer. He had nothing left to lose, and a man who has already accepted the fact of his own imminent death was a dangerous opponent indeed. All around them, men were fighting and dying, and it was impossible to tell which way the battle was going, but Miguel knew that victory would eventually go to the Macarius. The Bellerophon's standard crew complement was several thousand less than the large dictator-class vessel, and Miguel knew that over a third of the rebel cruiser's crew had died in the mutiny, and probably a thousand or so more in the bomber attack. They were doomed, but he was determined to acquit himself well before the end. One of his own crew rushed forward, wild-eyed with bloodlust, as he bore down on the Imperial officer. Miguel ran him through without a moment's thought, not willing to be robbed of the honour of the enemy flag officer's death. But the delicate balance of the duel had been broken. His opponent was the first to take advantage of the moment with a lightning-fast thrust. Miguel twisted his body, deliberately not parrying the blow, and he felt hot, bright pain as the blade slid deep into his side. Miguel fought down the wave of pain. He knew that, with his blade impaled inside Miguel's own body, the enemy officer was effectively disarmed. Miguel brought his own sabre down on the shoulder of the Imperial officer's sword arm, the heavy blade cleaving into flesh and bone. The Imperial officer cried out, falling back and leaving himself defenceless against Miguel's follow-up killing blow. Miguel swayed on his feet the sabre still piercing his side, and raised his arm to strike. A grip, as implacable as the massive docking clamps used to hold a vessel in orbital dry dock, descended on his wrist, crushing the bones and causing his sword to slip from suddenly nerveless fingers. He felt something sharp and cold punch him in the lower back, the coldness penetrating deep into his body. Once, twice, three times, in rapid succession. His legs gave way beneath him, but Miguel remained standing, dangling like a puppet in the grip of that vice-like pressure on the wrist of his still upraised arm. Then the pressure went away, and Miguel collapsed to the deck, his vision dimming. Through a haze of pain and shock, Hito Alante looked up to see the stoop-shouldered giant standing over him. The giant leaned down over him, rough hands lifting him up. Alante's eyes saw but didn't register the Hive World gang ritual scar patterns and prison world tattoos and brands which covered the giant's arms and face. Maxim Barossa, sir, growled a voice in an accent that could only have come from the depths of the Stranovar Underhive. Crew of the Mac, sir, you're in good hands now. I, I owe you my thanks. Alante mumbled, his eyes fixing on the blood-stained rank sash. I owe you my thanks, Petty Officer Barossa. Maxim Barossa grinned. He didn't recognise the officer whose life he'd just saved, but he knew what all that fancy braiding and uniform ornamentation meant. Command deck brass, and his ticket away from the miseries of life on the lower decks. If you say so, sir. If you say so. Bellerophon to Macarius, prize crew aboard and in position. We have restored engine and warp jump capabilities, ready to move out on your mark. The squadron of Chaos scout ships, three idolater-class raiders, drifted inert on the fringes of the Delphi system, listening to the intercepted radio chatter between the Imperial vessel and its captured prize. They had arrived too late to rendezvous with the renegade Imperial ship and escorted safely back to enemy space, and they could only watch from hiding as the War Master's prize was snatched away from them. The commander of the raider squadron knew that his ship would have stood no chance against an Imperial cruiser and its accursed bomber squadrons, but he doubted that the War Master would see it in such terms. Standing on his vessel's command deck, the dark shrouded captain 
watched as the target icons of the two Imperial cruisers moved away towards the outer edge of Surveyor Range. He turned towards the cultist astropath standing nearby. Send a signal to the War Master. Inform him that the technical information the rebel vessel was bringing to us remains in the hands of our enemies. The demon thing, living inside the flesh of the possessed chaos cultist, hissed in displeasure, its body warping into twisted new shapes as an almost physical foretaste of the War Master's own anger at the news he would soon be receiving. All over the bridge, the command crew busied themselves with their appointed tasks, none of them daring to look their doomed captain in the eye. My thanks, Magus Castaborus. Please continue with your work. The haughty tech priest nodded in acknowledgement, his expression hidden behind the mask he wore, and turned to join his entourage of servants waiting outside, leaving Semper alone in his quarters. Captain Semper leaned forward on his desk, one hand rubbing the jagged orc blade scar that marked one side of his face. It was force of habit, he knew, one that he was particularly prone to whenever he was trolled. He cleared his mind, thinking through what he had just learned. The stolen technical information had been removed from the Bellerephon's logic engines and transferred to the jealous guard of the Adeptus Mechanicus tech priests aboard the Macarius. An astropath message had been sent acknowledging the safe retrieval of the data, together with his recommendation that his injured flag lieutenant receive an official commendation for his actions in the battle, but Battlefleet Command were anxious to know the exact nature of the stolen information, as the vessel's most senior tech priest, Castaborus, had already completed a partial analysis of the coded data and had presented his findings to Semper. The two men were the only people aboard the starship who knew what the stolen data files contained, but what they had learned posed more questions than it answered. The files were a technical overview of the mighty Blackstone Fortresses, the six massive and ancient alien constructs which form the backbone of the Imperial Navy's strength in the Gothic sector. Each Blackstone was base to its own battlegroup fleet, and each possessed more than enough firepower of its own to fend off an attack by any of the War Master's current Reaver fleets. The information in the files was highly sensitive, yes, but never in the history of Battlefleet Gothic had a Blackstone Fortress fallen to the enemy, and Semper found it hard to believe that the War Master would consider wasting his strength in such a foolhardy move. Emperor's Oath, he swore to himself, as he studied the marked-out positions of the Blackstone systems on the star chart in front of him. What did it all mean? Somewhere within the Eye of Terror, where space and warp space merged together as one. Warmaster Abaddon, despoiler of worlds and dread vessel of the legacy of Horus, stared out at the eternally shifting patterns of the Maelstrom. What he saw there, what mysteries and secrets of the powers of the warp revealed to him, only the Warmaster alone knew. He turned back to the scene before him in the audience chamber, Dismissing the mutated messenger thing with a curt gesture, it scuttled away gratefully, all too aware that a subtly different gesture would have caused any of the dozen terrifying figures in Terminator armour standing around the room to cut it down in an instant. The sword in the scabbard at the War Master's side made a low, keening sound, sensing its master's dark mood. Abaddon laid a hand on its hilt, murmuring a few words of blasphemous reassurance to quiet the demon spirit bound into the weapon. In truth, the War Master's anger would soon be assuaged. Orders had been dispatched, and the commanders and crews of the escort squadron would soon know the price of their failure. Abaddon knew that the loss of the Blackstone Fortress data was only of temporary significance and would not affect his carefully laid plans. He turned back to the viewing base, staring out the wide, demon-mouthed portal in the flank of his temporary flagship, and into the maelstrom beyond. He could see shapes moving out there in the warp, innumerable small vessels and construction platforms. Through the moving warp patterns he could see the spires and pinnacles of the object of their labours, a vast and threatening shape hanging motionless 
amidst the tides of warp space. It was almost complete now, he knew. His new flagship, his new terror weapon, his planet killer, thought the War Master, enjoying the crudeness of the name. So simple, but so apt, that many of his lesser followers had already bestowed upon the device. His thoughts turned to the six secret prizes that were the only objectives in the entire war that truly mattered. Soon this new weapon, this planet killer, would be unleashed on his enemies. The followers of that withered corpse on the Golden Throne would tremble in terror at the destruction it would cause. Let them be afraid, gloated the despoiler. Let them think this will be the worst they have to face. When the time is right, when all the pieces are in place, they will soon know there is far worse to come. Thanks very much. That was part two. The book's laid out in a very odd way. It's separated into parts, and then within each part there's chapters. So for the sake of my own sanity and um, keeping things organised, I'm just going to do them in parts going forward. So technically... Yeah, don't worry about it. Basically, you just have to worry about, is this, is this part one? Is this part two? Is this part three? Right? That's all you've got to worry about, okay? Eventually, I'll form them up into one collective, hopefully, and uh, put it out like the other ones as a single audio book. But that's going to be a while in the future. We'll get these done first and get them out. Thank you, everybody. Um, thank you to everybody supporting the channel. It means a lot. If you would like to support the channel, I really appreciate that. Please consider becoming a YouTube member or a supporter on Patreon or on Subscribestar, if you prefer, if you would like, if you can. If not... Don't worry, but please do give the video a like. Let me know in the comments what you think. That all helps. It all helps spread it on the YouTubes. But also, uh, if you know anyone who you think would enjoy this, please do share it around. I appreciate that. I'll be back again with more stuff soon. We're not going to slow down with this. We're going to get this done as quickly as possible so it isn't hanging over my head like a sword of Democles. I want to get out of the way because it will become a burden about halfway through and I want to get it finished. <laughs> all right, see you later. Bye-bye.